0: Bruce exclusive welcome back well that was a heck of a way to end the year with a beatdown of a division rival even after a slow start Josh Allen lights him up Josh Allen gets pulled Matt Barkley lights him up the defense gets in on the action the special teams get in on the action that was a good time that was one of the most relaxing games I've seen recently And I know I just said that last week, but my stress level watching the Bills has been very low. A lot of people like those close games where you squeak one out at the end with a last minute feel going, the rush of emotion that comes from that. Man, I'm too old for this. Give me an absolute proper butt whooping by the Bills, not of the Bills, every single time. A nice, boring Super Bowl run. That's what I'd like to see just 38 to nine all the way across the board. So I'm good with it. And so as we wrap up the year, we start to talk about how the regular season went for these Buffalo bills before we turn the page and start looking at the Indianapolis Colts for this upcoming Saturday. And it occurred to me, and I mentioned it on Twitter That this was the only time in recent memory that I can imagine a team having a MVP, Coach of the Year, Executive of the Year, and Offensive Player of the Year candidate on their team, in their organization, simultaneously. I'm sure there's been a time where that's happened. I just can't recall. And the fact that I can't recall indicates how rare it is if it's happened before. I'm not saying that all of them are going to win those categories. I'm not saying all of them should win those categories. We will talk about that later. But the fact that they are spoken about, Sean McDermott as coach of the year, Brandon Bean as executive of the year, Josh Allen as MVP, offensive player of the year, perhaps Stefan Diggs as offensive player of the year. The fact that we have an organization that has all of these things firing on all cylinders tells you that there's a reasonable chance that what we just saw over the last 17 weeks, 16 games for the Buffalo Bills is the greatest regular season in franchise history. There's a very reasonable argument to be made that it's the best regular season in franchise history. Now, in order for me to do that, I would have had to have gone through every single regular season previously in Buffalo Bills history. And I was a little bit pressed for time. So I decided not to make the entire pod about that. I'm just going to toss it out there as kind of an interesting talking point, and then I'm going to retreat from it instead of doing the typical deep dive that we always do into things like that. Because I've got some other things I want to say. And this pod may not be very long. Because it's been kind of a long week for me. So I'm going to go until I run out of gas, and then I'm going to stop. So I think the thing was interesting going into the conversation of the Miami Dolphins game was, do you play the starters and risk injury, or do you try to win and get the two seed? Now, the Bills were able to sort of have their key Canadian too, because they did win, and they did have some bumps and bruises, but nothing that looks like it's really, really, really significant. And they were able to win and get the two seed. So they kind of were able to have their cake and in it too. I was of the opinion that you rest your starters. That is my particular opinion when it comes to what the Bills should have done. And I, I think it was interesting because what I said during the game was I think that Sean McDermott initially wanted to play Josh Allen in part to get him the passing record, the Bills single season passing yardage record. And then the longer he left him in, I thought maybe he's just letting Josh make a swing for MVP. And there were a couple of people in my mentions who who said some things that inspired the main topic for this podcast today. What they said was, well, this team or Josh Allen isn't about individual stats or accolades. That's not how we do things. They don't care about that stuff. I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be part of a team. Sacrificing some of self is what's necessary to be part of a team. Being part of a team and also being an individual who's on that team requires you to sacrifice some of yourself. It requires it in friendships, it's a two-man team. In marriages, it's a two-man team. It requires you to give up some of yourself, some of your own ambitions, some of your own desires, some of your own hopes and dreams perhaps, but not all of them. It requires sacrificing some of yourself, but not all of yourself. Football players are not mindless automatons. Yes, love is sacrifice. We've talked about this before. How much you love something is directly correlative to what you are willing to give up for it. Well, if they really love the team, they would sacrifice all those personal stats. If the team really loved them, they wouldn't ask them to. You have to balance those things these players do care about those things. And if they care about those things and you ostensibly care about them as a leader of a team, then that should matter at least a little bit to you. I'm not saying you do everything at the altar of individuality because that's not what team is. But you don't bury your individuality when you become part of a team. You don't just dig a hole in your backyard bury anything that identifies you as being a, an individual person and slap on the team logo and shut up for the media. That's that's not who players are. You ask them as leaders, you ask them to give up some of themselves, to sacrifice some of their time and their energy and their effort and maybe a little bit of their own personal ambitions block selflessly downfield. But you don't ask them to give up everything. That receiver that we all love so much, Tafon Diggs, openly admitted that one of the reasons he wanted out of Minnesota was because he didn't think that their offensive philosophy was conducive to him having a good career. He said that. What, now that he's on the Bills? that just doesn't matter anymore? Players are supposed to strike a balance, but they still want to play. They still want to perform well. They still want to achieve those things. And you really can't ask them not to. You can ask them to sacrifice some of that in service of the team. And what you do is you add up the sum of all of that little ego that was sacrificed by 53 different players And a bunch of coaches and a bunch of front office people and scouts and custodians and administrative assistants and every other person in that organization. You add up the sum of all of that that they were willing to sacrifice and you can make something with that. But that's how you build an organization. That's how you build a team. That's how you build structure. You don't say you walk in the door and you as an individual person and your hopes and your desires and your dreams, they no longer matter. Sorry. You're a bill now. You're not Stefan Diggs. You're a bill now. You're not Zach Moss. You're just a nameless automaton. That's not what this is about. So yes, if Sean McDermott put Josh Allen in for that reason. He would never admit it. He'd say he's playing for the two seed and that's okay. But when the university at Buffalo head coach took Jarrett Patterson out, when he was a few yards away from getting the all time rushing game record in NCAA history, we all threw a hissy fit. Why? Because we want players to achieve those things as long as those achievements are valued by us. And when they're not valued by us, we don't care. Might I make a suggestion? Might I suggest that part of leadership is caring about the individual aspirations and ambitions of the people underneath you? Maybe that's part of leadership. Maybe if I care about my employees hopes, and dreams, if I care about the things that they want to achieve and I help them move toward that, then they'll help to move the organization in the direction that I want it to go. People follow individuals who show courage to make tough decisions. People follow people who are competent and know what they're doing. And people follow people who care about themselves, about the work you show courage you show competency and you care that's how you lead people otherwise you're just an authority you're not a leadership there's no leadership involved it's just authoritarianism that's it you're doing it out of fear of getting fired there are two basic things that control human action fear of repercussion and inherent moral compass If they're only doing it out of fear of repercussion, you're never going to get it done as well. As if they're doing it because their morals tell them to do it. Because you as a leader care about them. You care about the things that they care about. Stefan, I know this matters to you. I'm going to try to do my best to get it for you. Josh, I know this matters to you. I'm going to try and do my best to get it for you. Listen, I may make a decision that you don't like and we may not be able to get it. But I acknowledge that it's important to you, and I want you to achieve that. These players are individuals with their own individual hopes, dreams, ambitions. And we can ask them to sacrifice some of them. We can ask them to not be entirely about themselves and to give up some of that stuff in service of the team. But if you remove all of it, you're just removing all the things that make them great. That striving for the next thing, that ambition, the thing that gets you up at 4 a.m. to work out with a torn ACL for nine months away from your team. You do that because you have individual pride. You do that because this is something you've strived for your entire life. Those are the things that make them great. Do I want them to take the edge off? Sure. Do I want to have an entire team full of people who only care about themselves? No, of course not. But one of the ways you foster good culture is understanding players and understanding that they care about those things too. Thankfully, I'm confident that Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, and the members of this organization as currently constructed do. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We've got some other stuff to talk about. Stick with me. We'll be right back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. We did the thing. We did the opening monologue. If this was a late night show, if this was Conan or some other late night shows. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know who's on now. I don't watch late night shows. I'm usually in bed. I've had my grape nuts by then. I've gone to bed. The next thing I want to talk about, aside from the long-winded rant that I went on before is at some point we have to learn this, right? At some point, we have to learn how important sample size is. I had people tell me after Isaiah McKenzie had a great return that we should get rid of Andre Roberts. I had people tell me that Antonio Williams should be RB1. I had people tell me earlier this year that Gabe Davis should replace John Brown. Another week, another reminder that Gabe Davis isn't on John Brown's level. But at some point, we need to care about sample size. At some point, we need to stop doing this. We did the same thing as a fan base after Duke Williams caught 100 yards of receiving in week 17 against the Jets. We do it all the time. At some point, sample size matters. I understand that it goes against some of the emotional things that go into fandom. But we got to stop going left and right, to and fro, every time a late round or undrafted rookie performs well in very, very limited circumstances. Because the overwhelming probability is they're not going to be Fred Jackson. The probability is they're going to be Martin Nance instead. Maybe they'll be David Sills or Tyree Jackson. But sample size matters. I'll tell you what we do have. We have a year of excellent sample size from Corey Bohorkas. Wow, I pounded the table for the Bills to take a punter last year. When they signed a punter in the middle of the offseason... I got on this podcast and said, I think he's probably going to be starting week one because he's not great, but at least he's consistently below average, consistently mediocre instead of Corey Bohorcus, I was wrong. Corey Bohorcus has had himself a heck of a season, ladies and gentlemen. Good for him. And with Bohorcus and Tyler Bass coming around, we may have our specialists here, Bills Mafia. We may have our specialists And they may be in play for our favorite team for a long time. Two players who played well in much more significant roles. Dane Jackson, AJ Epinesa. I do think Dane Jackson should have an opportunity to compete for CB2 next year. Now, obviously, just so you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to be pounding the table for a superior athlete at the cornerback two position this offseason because that's what I do every year. So just, Get ready for that. But Dane Jackson continues to impress with his aggressiveness at the catch point, his tackling ability, and he moves a little bit better than I thought he was going to move. So I am happy with Dane Jackson's development. He has shown a little bit more promise than I expected coming out. And if Dane Jackson turns into a reasonable facsimile, to Levi Wallace, that's a good use of a seventh round pick. I'm not saying let's give him the job. He's a superstar. He's the answer. I'm saying, hey, how about that contribution for a seventh round pick? It's pretty good, right? How about A.J. Epinesa contributing as a second round pick? 57 snaps most all year. The big discussion with A.J. Epinesa this past week was his weight. He talked about it Went down from about 280 to about 250. And the question is, can, of course, you retain power when you drop that weight? Because, of course, your length stays the same. Your arms didn't get shorter when you lost weight. If it did, we have problems. Can you retain the power? I will tell you one thing. The fluidity is there. I am consistently shocked when I see AJ Epinesa drop back in coverage or shows up unblocked. And unblocked edge defenders happens a lot in this league because of the prevalence of zone read concepts. And when he is unblocked, he shows good fluid motion, dropping the coverage in the zone read. I'm really pleased with what I've seen from AJ Epinesa and his development. One offseason for AJ Epinesa in a strength program that he's not worried about losing a bunch of weight, could do him a world of good. And we could have a reasonable player next year. I'm not saying, you know, he's an impact amazing player. He's not there yet, but he's progressing. And I'm happy about that. One of the things that compression rushers like AJ Epinesa need to learn is they need to learn how to utilize their length and their hands at the next level to beat tackles. And with a little extra juice, if he can still utilize that length, that's going to turn him into a much better player. I mentioned that we were going to get into my AP ballot vote if I had one. So we are going to go through the Associated Press awards that are given out at the end of the year. And I will tell you who I would vote for. If I had a vote, I don't have a vote, just so you know, but I didn't do this last year. And I thought it'd be interesting to do it because it's really about more than just the Buffalo Bills. This is about the NFL as a whole. So without further ado, let's start with assistant coach of the year, Robert Sala, San Francisco 49ers, assistant coach of the year, the 49ers defense doing what they did this year. Massively short-handed and without one of the best players in the league in Nick Bosa, and then immediately losing other important players all over their defense is nothing short of staggering. Robert Sala, assistant coach of the year, comeback player of the year. Is there any other option? It's Alex Smith. Name the award after the dude. Seriously, the Alex Smith. Comeback Player of the Year award. At first, they weren't sure he was going to live. Then they weren't sure if he was going to walk. Then they weren't sure if he'd ever run. Then they weren't sure if he'd ever play football. Then they're not sure if they'd ever take a real snap. And he started multiple games. Comeback Player of the Year. Clearly, Washington football team quarterback, Alex Smith. Executive of the Year. Brandon Bean. That's right. I'd vote for Brandon Bean for executive of the year. First off, you need to now give him credit three years after drafting Josh Allen for what Josh Allen has become. I've talked about it before on this podcast that Josh Allen's rise was improbable, but it only had to work once for Brandon Bean. Only has to work once. So he doesn't care how improbable it is. If he thinks that's the one out of a hundred or one out of 10 or one out of 30. If it's one out of a million, but you think that's the one, then you deserve credit for that. In addition, the swinging of the trade for Stefan Diggs was a catalyst for this offense taking off. It wasn't the only catalyst for this offense taking off. Josh Allen deserves a lot of that credit. But to Stefan Diggs... It's a perfect marriage. To Stefan Diggs, this was everything he wanted when he got traded. He led the league in catches. He led the league in yardage. He's a monster. Brandon Bean built this team personnel-wise and overturned almost everything in the last three years. And now they're a Super Bowl contender. Executive of the year shouldn't go to somebody who fell back asswards into the first pick overall and drafted a generational prospect, cough, Ryan Grigson, cough. Instead, it should go to recognize the work that someone like Brandon Bean has done in order to build a Super Bowl contender from a franchise that hadn't been to the playoffs in 17 years. Executive of the year, Brandon Bean. Coach of the year, Kevin Stefanski. Yes, I know what you're saying. Oh, well, Sean McDermott. The same reason Sean McDermott should have won it in 2017 is the same reason Kevin Stefanski should win it this year. Historically inept franchise. They also have a playoff drought of 17 years, mind you. He has to install a brand new system in a COVID offseason, which is not the same as a carryover system. Yes, all the coaches struggled with COVID this offseason, but new coaches were hurt the worst. Turned around Baker Mayfield's career, got him back on the right track. Won 11 games. I understand they played the NFC East. I understand that. I understand that the AFC North had somewhat more of a down year than historically they have. And they got a chance To beat up on the Bengals twice. I get that too. But if we're going to give Sean McDermott tons of credit for 2017. Then we should give Kevin Stefanski credit for 2020. Kevin Stefanski is my coach of the year. Defensive rookie of the year. Chase Young. Pretty obviously. He was the front runner from the moment his name was read off the card. One of the most dominant defensive ends to come out in the draft in recent memory. The Washington football team's defense is the reason why they're in the playoffs. In addition to that, the NFC East was historically bad. But they basically didn't have a quarterback who had reasonable play. And then when they finally got even a reasonable amount of quarterback play, they went 4-1 and with Alex Smith. That's how bad their quarterback play was this year. Offensive Rookie of the Year, Justin Herbert. Could have been Justin Jefferson, but Justin Jefferson just filled the Stephon Diggs role in the Minnesota Vikings offense and did a really, really, really good job. And he's going to be a good player. Justin Herbert is a quarterback, so immediately there's more significance to the position and had one of the best rookie seasons we've ever seen from A rookie quarterback. Defensive player of the year. Aaron Donald. Again. Absolutely dominant. Led the league in pressures. By a significant margin. From an interior defensive line spot. Absolutely continues to wreck. Every team he comes up against. 100% Aaron Donald. Not Xavier Howard. I think that's an impressive display with the amount of interceptions that he got. But I'm still going Aaron Donald. Offensive player of the year, Derrick Henry. 2,000-yard seasons are rare. Very, very, very rare. And I don't think that Derrick Henry should be the most valuable player. In fact, I don't think he's in my top five when it comes to most valuable players in the NFL. Just because of the nature of the running back position. But Derrick Henry still had, statistically a staggering offensive season that is very rare. Only eight people in history have ever done it. That deserves recognition, albeit not necessarily for the Most Valuable Player Award. MVP, Aaron Rodgers. I know you're going to get mad at me for this. You're going to say, Josh Allen, you're listening to a Bills podcast. The second best season of passer rating in history was done this year by Aaron Rodgers. And The only person who beat him was another Aaron Rodgers season. Aaron Rodgers now has the top two. The top two seasons of passer rating in NFL history. If you look at the top 12 passer rating seasons in NFL history, eight of those players, eight of those players won the MVP award. So it's it's a significant predictor. Aaron Rodgers for those people who do not believe that wins are a quarterback stat, is making a case as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time with the dominance and how well he's playing. Josh Allen has had an unbelievable season. I think he's an MVP candidate, and I think he's worthy of being on that stage. But my vote would go to Aaron Rodgers. However... Josh Allen does get a nice consolation prize for me. And that is, he gets a big old slice of plurality pie. Oh, you didn't think we were going to forget, did you? We're going to give some plurality pie out today. Josh Allen, 26%. Why is it not higher? Well, he didn't play the whole game. Isaiah McKenzie, 17%. I mean, three touchdowns, filled in well as a punt returner, filled in well as a kick returner, filled in well as a slot receiver, didn't show... In limited snaps, the significant ball security issues that plagued him throughout his entire career, college and pro. It's not a small sample size of ball security problems with Isaiah McKenzie. It's a large sample size of ball security issues. Didn't show up. Stephon Diggs, 11%. What more can you say about Stephon Diggs? He has been the number one receiver, not just in this team. But also in the league, statistically. Tremaine Emmons, 9%. Gosh, man, it's good to see him healthy. Tremaine Emmons was all over the field. And I'm more and more convinced that his shoulder injury caused hesitation. And the hesitation caused the bad plays earlier this year. Because since he's gotten healthy, he's been a new man. Dean Marlowe, 7%. Because Dean Marlowe was right there. All the time, Dean Marlowe was right there. I'm always happy to see people like that when they have an opportunity to shine like Antonio Williams and Dean Marlowe do well. It matters to them because they put in their work and they work hard and then they don't get to see the field very often during the year. And that's hard on somebody, a competitive athlete who wants to play. And then when they finally get a chance to play and they play well, man, that'll sustain you for a long time. It'll sustain the ego. It'll sustain the energy, the juice that you've got. It's good for backups to play in a blowout either way. And Dean Marlowe is proof that having a player on your bench who knows the system and works hard does have value. Other, 30%. Josh Allen, 26%. Isaiah McKenzie 17%, Stefan Diggs 11%, Tremaine Evans 9%, Dee Marlowe 7%, other 30%. We have done it, ladies and gentlemen. We have dished out the plurality pie. We have done the things we said we were going to do. And now we're going to sign off. And until next time, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan.